Greetings. Welcome to the Dividing Line. It is a Monday, and, well, uh, it sounds like things might be changing a little bit over the course of the next uh, couple of weeks. Let's hope that is the case. I uh, understand uh, Texas is starting to open up and Georgia and uh, maybe a few of them do that and uh, aliens don't come down and, and uh, cause problems, then... Uh, uh, maybe for other people start doing that too. But we're still with you here in uh, the midst of certainly the weirdest year in my life, uh, probably in yours as well. Um, 2019's looking really good right now. That was that was fun. Those are the good old days. <laughs> Those are the days, my friend. Don't make me start singing. You don't want me to do that. Yep. <clears throat> remember, remember when you... Uh, let's not start down that. Okay. So... I got a lot to get to here. I'm going to try to uh, uh, not I'm not in any way seeking to um, uh, disrespect our uh, truck drivers or anything like that today, but we're going to try to actually do a normal length program for once. I've got a little uh, errand I need to run uh, out to the East Valley and back again, So, uh, which isn't as bad as it normally would be. Uh, this time of day, this would really, you know, norm, normal days. Uh, this would be ugly, but um, not too bad uh, right now. Not much in the way of uh, traffic out there. That's going to that's gonna start changing. And um, I was thinking this morning there's going to be people making arguments because of all this, that we just need to do this permanently because look how nice the air is. Yeah, well, uh, then, um, then you have all the stuff about, um, you know, running out of food, which, <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful day outside, honey. I can see the mountains, and boom, you fall over dead. So, yeah, that's there's there's a problem there. But uh, we'll try to get things done uh, in a uh, in a good time here. I just realized that I have been bitten by something that was. Uh, I need. I wish I had put some Benadryl on that baby. Benadryl is nice to have too. It's very. Isn't it wonderful? Can you imagine what it was like in the days of the patriarchs when you had to ride like a camel or something and the fleas that thing had and you had no benadryl wow man i i don't know how i don't know how anybody i would have been constantly writing imprecatory psalms <laughs> wouldn't have, would never have had any of those real upbeat psalms or anything like that at all speaking of not upbeat um on the uh, last program i had thought about getting to this particular text but i did not manage to get there uh, and so I apologize for that. And so we're going to try to get to it now. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10 is where I would like to start. What? Oh, uh, no, no, we, we don't need to put it up. Um, Isaiah chapter 10, uh, will be uh, where we will start. Uh, if you want to grab your Bible and, um, I want to, Talk a little bit with you uh, about you know we, it's not it's not that we haven't been to Isaiah ten before, uh, but how many new subscribers did you say we picked up over the past month? How many? Over a thousand uh, new subscribers uh, to the dividing line um, over the past number of weeks, and so you all uh, don't have anything else to be doing. So that means you can grab your Bible and we can. Uh, we can look at this uh, text together. I know we have looked at it before in various other contexts. Uh, the, the the context of this being the nature of biblical of the biblical divine decree, 
Because here's the problem. Um, one of the topics that we are addressing right now on the program on a long-term basis is the issue of what is called determinism. Now, almost every theist is a determinist. Almost every theist is a determinist. You have to, as a theist, you have to take some pretty radical um, hard turns to avoid some form of determinism. If if you believe that God knows the future at all, then you are in some form a determinist. So even the open theist still falls into a category of determinism because the open theist says that God knows what he is going to do in the future himself. He may not knew, know what other free creatures are going to do. This is how the open theists at least used to. I don't know. I haven't. Last uh, debate I had with Open Theist was on Unbelievable about, what, three, four years ago. Uh, so maybe they've come up with something new since then. But um, John Sanders and that group would define their position along the lines of God knows what he is going to do in the future, but um, he does not do, know what free creatures will do in the future. Now, obviously, I would sit here and go, well, if he's relational, then what he's going to do and what the free creature is going to do, it's going to have to change because the creatures might do stuff he doesn't expect, which in open theism happens a lot. So an open theist might fall into the category of a determinist uh, as long as God knows what he's going to be doing. But everybody else, as far as Christian history would go, would, would fall into the category of a form of determinism. If God, and certainly if God has infallible knowledge of future events, which by confessional definition, Southern Baptists have to believe, Presbyterians have to believe, um, Reformed Baptists, of course, have to believe, um, then that future is determined. Now, in that context, um, the Westminster Confession, London Baptist Confession, um, and confessions like that, the basis of that determination is the, the positive expression of the purpose, intention, and will of God. Now, in other forms, that is not the positive expression of his will, except in maybe in, in the sense of the final outcome, but not the details as to how you get to the final outcome. And then there's a lot of Christian theistic theories that basically say, well, that either simply go, well, we don't know, because they recognize that if they say we do know, then that puts them into a category they don't want to be in. We just don't know, or it's a mystery, or... Somehow God knows what's going to happen in the future. We just don't know how he knows. It's just all present to him. But you still have to, you still have to deal with the reality that if you say, and how was it I, I, put, I put it um, just a couple of uh, programs ago. I said something along the lines of, does God know what I am going to have for dinner on Christmas Eve in 2021 or something like that. 
if we're allowed to have Christmas in 2021. Um, but, uh, well, that's that, uh, holiday holidays are the most non-social distancing thing that we do. So, you know, that could be the fourth wave. We may be just pushing, you know, it's sort of like when you've got really badly installed carpet and you try to suppress the curve on one, it just moves over here. Then you suppress it on that one, it just, just keeps on and going. Uh, that's that's the problem with that theory, is uh, if you suppress it now, it just comes back up later on. That's This this herd immunity stuff actually makes a lot of sense. Um, but anyway, uh, let's let's not get into that right now. If God knows what I'm going to eat for dinner Christmas Eve in 2021, can I have something other than that? Can I falsify God's knowledge? And if God knows that, did God learn it? Was there a temporal or logical, because those are not the same things, was there a temporal time, was there a time in time when God did not know, but came to know? And then logically, not speaking temporally, not, not in a succession of timed events, but in the logical relationship that would be descriptive of God's knowledge, was there a point at which God came to know what I would have for dinner on Christmas Eve of 2021? All of this shows the interrelatedness of our confession that God is creator. That's one of the reasons, remember on Friday, I was talking with uh, Jason Lyle, and he mentioned that he wrote his book on presuppositional apologetics to sort of introduce it to the creation community. Well, the reality is the creation community is a community that is, I think, just very logically to be reformed. Because the relationship of the truth of God being creator with the reality that God has a decree, it, it, it makes perfect sense. The idea that God would create without knowing what he was going to do with his creation, that he would create and go, oh, man, I, oh, I didn't see that. They can't, I can't believe they did that. That kind of a perspective really doesn't ring true with much of what you read in, in the text of Scripture. And so uh, that, that community recognizes that when you talk about God as creator, when you say that all things hold together, sunestekin, in him, that is a, well, that implies Purpose, intention, decree, and then what is what is sovereignty worked out in time? Providence. Providence, God acting within time. And so, when we talk about the eternality of God, the decrees of God, and we talk about determinism... The problem is that term comes to us from philosophy and it carries a lot of baggage with it that defies being defined by the only way we should define things in this context. Uh, and that is, of course, not the Enterprise E, 
but the Bible. <laughs> Which, grab my, uh, it says Sola Scriptura right on the front. Grab my Bible there. This should be what defines for us the parameters of what we could meaningfully be, de- be defining as determinism. The problem is, um, when we look at the early church, it's very easy, again, very, very easy for us to look back upon the early church and be so hypercritical because we do not see ourselves in the context that we're in right now. I mean, when you think about the things we're emphasizing right now, nobody two years ago could have understood why we would be emphasizing the, the set of realities that we're emphasizing right now. Couldn't have, couldn't have understood We've never experienced anything like what we're experiencing right now. So, some of you think that I'm a raving liberal or something because I tend to be so, well, hopefully gracious toward those who've come before us in not just blowing everybody out of the water who had any belief different um, when we're talking about early church history, when we're talking about uh, medieval church history, for that matter. Um, you have to be gracious. Well, let's just put it this way. If you knew as much about the Reformers as I know about the Reformers, you'd have to be gracious toward the Reformers to remain Reformed. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, I've stood on the bridge in Zurich uh, where Zwingli uh, chucked Anabaptists off and gave them their third baptism. I, I, I've, I've read some of Luther's anti-Semitic um, uh, sermons. Uh, I know those those issues, and I also know that when it comes to certain elements of theology, um, that we would have found some of the things some of the reformers said on somewhat adiaphora, but then some other things that we'd go, "What really? They they really held that kind of view?" And so, if we have to do that with people as close to us in history as the Reformers, and they, they are relatively close to us. Um, then when we look back at the earlier periods of history, you have to be more gracious. And when you look at that first, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like when the early church attempted to take this amazing, this amazing teaching about a resurrected Messiah, who's actually the creator of all things, out into the Greek-speaking world which was the Roman world, but a world really that had been formed in a matter of years by just one of the most amazing figures in church uh, in human history, Alexander the Great. And uh, the all of the competing ideas and theologies that already existed at that time and the philosophies and everything else, and then here you go marching into this Greek culture with this strange message of a crucified Messiah, and there's a lot of questions that have to be asked and answered. And we can sit here in our modern day and and just go, well, man, did they mess that up? Well, some I think did. I mean, you can't when i when i neither of the of the of the cyrils do i really either Alex, the the first earlier cyril of alexandria 
the later one. Um, yeah, I'm just... I try to read them. Just, it's tough for me to do. I, I will confess. And so it would be easy for me... You know, there are certain people in, in church history that you just... Uh, guy even, just, does, just doesn't strike you as somebody you'd want to have a hamburger with. Um, but then others seem to really try to strike a balance. And really, it, you know, you, they were trying to get the message out there and answer the questions in a way that's faithful to Scripture, but sometimes they messed up. I mean, if, what if you didn't have anybody to look back to, to, to see how they did it? It, it, can, be, it, it can be a real challenge. Um, so you look at that early church, and you, you see what they were up against, and you see the concepts of determinism that already existed in the first century in the Roman world. And then you could see how that impacted the fights, the, the, the arguments that were being had, and the enemies of the church. These are all things that have to be taken into consideration when you, when you think about what early church writers were saying and thinking on these issues. And then, most importantly, is the split that takes place between the synagogue and the church. Necessary in one sense, but what it resulted in was a decentralization of the necessary and intimate connection between the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek Scriptures. The fulfillment the, the, the threads of fulfillment, the dependence that the New Testament writers have upon the Old Testament text, especially after Origen, but as far back as uh, even before him, um, Clement. That's what I was referring I said Cyril. Cyril of Alexander comes later, Clement of Alexander. Both, it was the Alexandria that I wanted to refer to, not the Cyril part. Um, Reading Clement of Alexandria or Cyril of Alexandria, either one of them, you know, though Cyril was just just on a personal level, was just not a nice guy. Anyway, um, you could you could go back to 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 Clement of Alexandria, which is different than Clement of um, Rome, by the way, um, and you'll see this dangerous diminishment of the Old Testament, and of course, then with Origen, with the allegorical interpretation. One of the primary problems, one of the primary reasons there is there is such a difference between Augustine and Calvin is that Calvin is writing from a significantly better exegetical position than Augustine was because Augustine is too close to origin. And um, Augustine's understanding of the meaning of the Old Testament is greatly to be flawed and greatly to be questioned. And that, Im- that impacts everything. Um, and it is, it, it is in the Reformation that you really get a recovery of a meaningful view of the Old Testament text and exegesis of the Old Testament text and and especially the intertextuality, the relationships between Old and New Testament, uh, becomes uh, 
much more of a, a focus of study. Sadly, we've lost a lot of that even in our own day. But we've lost it not because of an abandonment, not because we've gone back to some kind of a allegorical view of the Old Testament. It's because we've lost a view of inspiration, period. Once you, once you put this into a naturalistic worldview and it just becomes collections of people's errant thoughts, um, then it just becomes a badly edited mishmash of, of human speculation, and that's, that's all you can do with it. So um, all of that, uh, big, long introductory background to the reality that um, when we talk about determinism, when Ken Wilson and Leighton Flowers talk about determinism, there are all sorts of meanings to that term. And we need to understand what the categories, the meaningful categories of understanding that term, what they are, and therefore what could in any way be connected to a biblical understanding of God's kingship over his creation. And so when you say a Calvinist is a determinist, well, of course, almost any Christian is a determinist. But you might say, well, there's soft determinism and strong determinism. Well, what you're getting into there is the expression of the divine will and the relationship of God as creator to the very fabric of time itself. And part of what you have to think about at that point is, is God himself subject to the parameters of time? Is there anything outside of God? Are we talking about monotheism, first of all? <laughs> that's, that's important because when you're talking about um, Gnosticism and Manichaeanism especially, you're not talking about monotheistic systems. Not in any meaningful sense. At, at the very, 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 very best, you're talking henotheism, but you're, you're not even really talking about classical theistic systems here. Um. And, and you're certainly far removed from anything that would be related to what we will be reading here in, in Isaiah chapter 10. So there are external forces that can, in essence, call God's hand in these systems that are just simply not a part of a Christian understanding of God and divine revelation and things like that. All of this will have fundamental defining, characteristically defining impact upon what, what you're talking about when you're talking about determinism. And just If it's going to be meaningful, I mean, if the word's going to communicate something, you know, you want to write and you want to speak in such a way that what you're saying will make sense after you're dead, <laughs> okay? Or it'll make sense after the current controversy you're involved with or, or something along those lines. Um, and so if we want to say things about Augustine and, the, and Manichaeism and Gnosticism, then they need to be true in this conflict and then in the conflict that comes five years from now. And so you want to, you, you, that's why you have to be, you know, when someone says, I've come up with this phrase, I sort of go, um, so no one thought about this before you, so you had to come up with a phrase because 
you're just you're just breaking new ground. I'm concerned that someone in this conversation thinks they are, and they're not. That's that's the problem there. So, with all that said, um, one of the things I want to look at is the nature of the divine decree, and we are given in Scripture a real strong example because it, it seems to me that in most of the commentary, and there's, I have said before, it, it seems in reading um, Dr. Wilson's um, dissertation that most paragraphs are notes, quotes, unedited. So, and there, I was looking at one section today, it just Look, I've done work like this before, and I know what it is to have a note file. You know, you're doing research. Oh, I want to remember this. Put it in there. Uh, you use your scanner or whatever it is you're, you're using to your phone, whatever, to get a quote in there. And then you a few things to remind you of exactly how this is related to something else. And then, and then two months later, you're working through that material. And, oh, okay, yeah, okay, that says that, that says that. And... So you could just sort of like take that and try to smooth out some of the sentences and turn it into something. Well, some people might be able to get away with it, but a lot of people can't. And so I was looking at exactly that kind of a situation. And I was reminded in so doing of the fact that over and over again, it is assumed that there cannot that the, the one option that is not on the table is compatibilism. You either believe in an autonomous free will, or you believe in a mechanical um, divine decree that just makes everybody marionette, marionettes and puppets. So, for example, you you look at the writings from Qumran. And you have people acting and desiring and expressing things and doing all the stuff that we human beings do. And then you have a clear acceptance of God's complete sovereignty over human affairs to the point of the beating of your heart or the, the movement of your tongue. And there are a lot of people that you just can't put those two together. It's got to be one or the other. Well... What have we said long before I ever heard of Ken Wilson? Um, traditionalism, whatever terms are using for themselves these days, now provisionalism, um, that perspective flattens out the multi-dimensional reality of Scripture. It flattens it out, says it has to be only in two dimensions, can't be in anything else said that, I don't know the first time I used that analogy, but it's been a long, long time. You can't do that with Isaiah chapter 10. You can't do it. Turn with me, Isaiah 10, 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Now, you've you got to understand, Assyria, one of, not only one of the most violent um, nations, kingdoms, empires in the ancient world. 
um, but thoroughly pagan. So you're, you're talking an evil nation here. No concern whatsoever about God's law or anything else. The rod of my anger, the staff in whose hands is my indignation. This is God speaking. This is Yahweh speaking. I send it against a godless nation. Oh, that must have hurt. For Assyria to be coming against Israel and call Israel the godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury. People of my fury. Hmm. Think about that one for a second. Um, This is fulfillment of God's anger against the people of Israel. This is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. To capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. So God says, I'm sending Assyria against Israel, and they, it's like a club in my hand, and I am bringing my judgment to bear upon this people, my fury. Now, we're going to be talking very, I just realized I needed to get to this too, so I'm going to pick up the pace here. But we're going to be talking about Christians who don't believe God has wrath or fury a little bit later on. Um, but then notice, yet it, that is Assyria, this is verse 7, does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? By the way, you can track down all the names of these cities and realize that this is being written at that time. These are cities that were captured and so on and so forth. As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, graven images, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? And so you've got Israel, you've got Judah, you've got the Assyrians, eventually it's going to be the Babylonians, eventually it's going to be the Egyptians and that part of the world is the intersection uh, of, of various uh, empires. So, here, the people of Assyria are being viewed as a weapon in God's hand, and yet, they have no intention of glorifying God. They're not doing this because Israel is sinning and they want to see God. God needs to punish these sinners. No, they're haughty. They're arrogant. All all they're concerned about is power and riches and plunder in this world. So they have one intention. They have one desire. And it's not a good desire. It's a sinful desire. And God says, I'm using them. I'm bringing them. Well, they think they're bringing themselves. Yeah, God says, I know. I know. You can't flatten this out. You can't squish. This is one curve you cannot flatten out. Uh, you can't squish this down. This is multidimensional. This, this, there, there is truth on different levels here. And if you say you can only have one level, you're never going to understand Scripture. You're never going to allow Scripture to speak for itself. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria, and the pomp of his haughtiness. And you go, no way, okay, now wait a minute. How's that just? 
how how is it just for God to use the the haughty arrogance of the heart of the king of Assyria, the pomp of his haughtiness? Well, it's not sinful. Yeah, but God used it. Yeah, so God can do things like that. God can act in this world. If he didn't use sinners, he'd never <laughs> who would he be using it? <laughs> All of us are sinners. And really, that's where the, the, the one of the problems. Well, God can't do that. Why? He's God. Well, who do you think you are to put limitations on them in, in, in this way? Well, but shouldn't he like cut them a break? Because why? They were doing what their hearts desired to do, and that's what he judges on. He doesn't judge you as to how you fit into his eternal plan, because he determined that. So how could you be judged on that? He will judge you on what you do in regards to your own desires in your own heart. And it was the desire of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria to be haughty. And so God will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this, for I have understanding, and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants, and my hand reached the riches of the peoples like a nest. As one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth, and there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. And so here is, you can find, you go into the, the stella and the things that have been found, uh, inscriptions in the ancient world, and you'll find this kind, this very kind of language emblazoned on the walls of the kings of Assyria and other nations of that day. And so you better believe that the king was haughty. But he did not realize that everything he did, he did as literally the servant of the one true God. This is, this is the king who doesn't experience what Nebuchadnezzar experiences later on with Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar had the exact same thought. Look what I have done and I have done this. And then you get judgment. Deuteron- uh, Daniel chapter 4. So listen to what uh, God's word says. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. So you're just a, you're just a club in my hand, Assyria. But you're exalting yourself over the one who wields you. Anytime we rebel against God, that's, you've got the creation acting like this against the Creator. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. You read that before? I wonder how many people, when they read that, stop and go, it's not their fault. They're just doing what the king told them to do. No one who read this initially would have even hesitated 
wouldn't have caused them any problems at all because they understand something called federal headship. They understand what it means to be represented by another, that, that when you're a soldier, you're a representative of the king, and the king represents you, ultimately. And so God sends a wasting disease among his stout warriors. I wonder how many people who call themselves Christians would actually believe that God would send a wasting disease among the stout warriors of the Assyrian Empire. For having done what God decreed they would do to punish Israel. I can think of a lot of people that just would never, would never preach this, never teach this, don't, wouldn't believe it. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day, and he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. And then, interestingly enough, in the midst of all this, you then have messianic prophecy. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. And then you have a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, etc., etc. This is, um, and then verse 23, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed, Yahweh Elohim of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. So the question is, could that be undone? Is God's decree um, firm? Is God's decree unquestionable? Will it be accomplished? What if God had not done this? Would you have any reason to trust or believe in anything that Scripture says about anything? So the point is, you have one action, the Assyrians coming against Israel. People died. Cities were burned. Horrible things happened. Children died. And God had said, this is what I will do if you break my covenant. Deuteronomy 28, 29. And then God punishes the Assyrians, not because of what they did to Israel, but because of the attitude with which the king viewed himself and his refusal to give thanks to the God that he knew existed. Romans chapter 1. So, one action, on God's part, perfectly pure motives, on man's part, perfectly sinful motives, accomplishing what God has decreed, and this was a part of the creation of the remnant, the remnant, and that becomes, of course, extremely important in the, the, the lima, which you see in Romans, the remnant people, this is God accomplishing his purpose. This is what his intention was from the start. Now, you may not like that. Uh, I don't, you, you can't wrap your, your mind around a God that, that's, that is that big. I get it. 
But how wise is it for you as a finite human creature? You may be made in the image of God, but you flourish in the morning and you pass away at night. You live for a very short period of time in comparison to the God of all creation. And you know very little in comparison to the God of all creation. How wise is it for you to go, I'm not going to honor a God like that. I, I've told the story many times of this Roman Catholic lady that came to our offices years and years and years ago, 16th Street. And when I talked to her about the sovereignty of God, when I talked to her about elections, she said, I would never worship a God like that, who chose, who exercised his free will in the distribution of grace. I would never worship a God like that. And my response to her was, I know that's the problem. That's the problem. You're worshiping of God of your own, your own making. So this is one of those passages of Scripture, as we have in Acts chapter 4, as we have in Genesis chapter 50, where you have to do violence to the context and to the text itself to get away from the multifacetedness, the multidimensional nature of the reality that you have a divine decree. The term is used right there, one that is decreed. Verse 23, you've got it right there. It's decreed. you got a divine decree. He's accomplishing his purposes. And then you have judgment, which means that the attitudes of the heart of the king of Assyria was relevant to the doing of justice that God then brings against the king of Assyria. Which means he wasn't just a puppet, was he? Because God does not punish puppets. So all of your flattened out, two-dimensional ways of trying to deal with something that's much deeper than that, not going to be able to pull it off. Not going to be able to do it. You have to allow Scripture to be deeper uh, than, than these things. And so when we talk about determinism, um, what kind of determinism are we talking about? Well, one thing should be obvious. There has never been a Gnostic. There has never been a Manichaean who could read these words and fit this God into their system. Not possible. Not possible. Can't be done. Now, I said I would do this, so I need to get to it. Um, I've mentioned before uh, that sometimes I follow people in social media just simply to to avoid the total echo chamber. Because you can create a complete echo chamber if you want to. Now, at the same time, I don't like having insane foolishness sitting on my screen for long periods of time either. Um, so it's not like I try to be balanced. I, I, I would rather follow... The majority of the people I follow are people that I'm, I'm going to be sharing something with. But still, I follow a few people just so I can go, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, and one of the people that I started following, I don't remember what the specific 
thing that was that 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 prompted it um why I specifically did so um but I started following Jonathan Merritt and Jonathan Merritt is well I guess he's according to his own website has actually pastored at some time in the past uh, I guess he's a graduate of Liberty um in uh pastor in Georgia and um so uh he has been on a journey shall we say I think that would be the kindest way of putting it he has been on a journey out of evangelicalism he's been on a journey out of evangelicalism for uh, quite a while uh, in company with others that we could name um, who have joined him on that particular trek out of the um, the confines of evangelical Christianity. And he is a writer. He writes for Religion News Service. He writes for some other uh, places, including The Atlantic. Now, The Atlantic is not a Christian source of um, writing and um, insight. But he mentioned last week, after he had he had written an RNS shot um, at Al Mohler uh, the week before, which simply on a uh, on the level of journalism was horrific. It was just really bad. And and I said, because you you don't think that if you want to be taking, if you really want to seriously engage with Al Mohler, don't you think that you've got stuff you could be talking about that isn't 20 years old? I mean, it's sort of lazy um, to be digging back into stuff from long ago, digging up stuff that, that is in old videos that are sitting in YouTube someplace, um, rather than doing serious journalism, but that's that's what he decided to do. He decided to take that kind of a shot. But it's very obvious that Jonathan Merritt really, really, really detests the concept of not only the sovereignty of God, but especially the concept of the wrath of God. And he just can't help but taking shots specifically at John Piper. And so sometime last week, I even tweeted in response to something he had tweeted. Uh, I, I tweeted, John Piper said, get ready for a shot heading incoming. Uh, warning, John Piper incoming, because it was obvious that he was writing something that was going to include taking a shot at John Piper. Well, he wrote an article Christian cruelty in the face of COVID-19. Some of the most visible Christians in America are failing the coronavirus test. So this is all about people failing, according to Jonathan Merritt. So Jonathan Merritt is going to become the judge of what failure is. But the real question to me is, doesn't this article tell us more about Jonathan Merritt than it does anything else? I think it does. Let's see why. Consider the popular pastor John Piper, 
who was asked what he would say to pastors who claim that the pandemic is God's judgment on sinful cities and arrogant nations. Quote, God sometimes uses disease to bring particular judgments upon those who reject him and give themselves over to sin. End quote. Piper responded. And that's it. That's all he's going to say about Piper. Nothing about Piper's writings, theology, work, context, nothing. This was yellow journalism. It was, I'm going to be writing to people in the Atlantic that don't have a clue who John Piper is. And so I can determine the context for anybody I want to take a shot at and get everybody in this audience that will be mine to agree with me. And I don't even have to get my, I don't even have to break a sweat. I don't even, I don't even have to do much in the way of Google searching, let alone actual reading. I can just take shots all I want. And that's what he did. And so we, we need to hear this kind of a statement that is meant to be an argument, but fails to actually function as an argument. Because evidently, by titling it the way that it's titled, this is a failure on John Piper's part. Well, what is the failure in saying that God sometimes uses disease to bring particular judgments upon those who reject him and give themselves over to sin? We just read Isaiah chapter 10, didn't we? Didn't God do that to the soldiers of Assyria? After using them to punish his wayward people, Israel? Didn't this happen many times in the scriptures? Didn't this happen even in the New Testament? Didn't God strike Ananias and Sapphira down? What happened to Herod? Hmm. So there is a worldview that is being brought into play by Jonathan Merritt. He doesn't have to define it, and he doesn't have to defend it. But he can use it as a weapon against Christianity. And he gets the ears of the audience because he claims to be the Christian himself. So I'm on the inside. Let me tell you how bad we really are to an audience that plainly and clearly is looking for every reason in the world to believe exactly that. He doesn't argue against what Piper says because it's self-evidently biblically true. Or perhaps look to R.R. Reno, the editor of the conservative Christian journal First Things, who argued that it's not worth a, quote, mass shutdown of society, end quote, just to fight the virus. Quote, there is a demonic side to the sentimentalism of saving lives at any cost, end quote, Reno wrote, decrying the, quote, ill-conceived crusade against human finitude and the dolorous reality of death, end quote. Well, that sounds like Reno is a real jerk. I went and found his article. And I read it. It was insightful and wise. And his argument was, we draw lines of necessity in regards to life and death every day. There have always been people in our midst who are immunocompromised, who have multiple underlying 
problems. And for some reason, 60,000 a year dying because their complicated situation becomes overcomplicated by influenza has never before caused us to shoot our civilization in the head before. And he's right. If you take it, if you think that mankind can control death, then we would all live in separate bubbles. We would never interact with one another. We would never accomplish anything. We would never do anything. And we'd still die. Right. But that's what he was talking about. But you see, this is, this is quote mining. This is how you, you put together, you know who your audience is. You know what's going to push their buttons. You know what's going to create emotion. It may not have anything to do with your target. So he did to Piper, so he did to Mueller. That's what he's doing here to Reno. This is a very popular form of non-journalism. And Merritt knows that he could never engage in any type of meaningful debate over these issues. Because Reno or any of these other people go, well, wait a minute, but I, I said that in this context. I said this in this context. Are you saying this? Are you? And once you get pressed, well, it's like, you know, unwisely going on Tucker Carlson. <laughs> you, know, it's just, you end up looking really bad by the time you get done with it. So Merrick continues, COVID-19 has claimed nearly 50,000 lives in America thus far. I stopped for a moment. There was a lady on Twitter this morning that went after me. My first words to her is, you cannot reason with panic. And after I still attempted to reason with her and her response was completely irrational and completely emotional, that proved that I probably could have stopped right after the first few words that I wrote. But what I did do is I tried to provide to her some numbers from the CDC from 2017. So before all this stuff happened as to how many people are dying every day, every hour, every minute in the United States and what they die of. People don't know these things. I've shared them with you before on this program. Contextless numbers mean nothing. They mean nothing. Nearly three times that number, the number he gave right there, will die of Alzheimer's disease in one year in the United States. Alzheimer's. That's the same, same group, pretty much, right? Same group. And yet, there are a number of things that have been linked to the onset of Alzheimer's. Environmental things. How many people are running around focused upon avoiding any of those? Most people don't even know what they are. But if your phone every five minutes gave you push notifications about someone else who died of Alzheimer's, you would be panicked about that and you'd be willing to shut down all of your life to avoid that. That's what's happened here. That's what's different. And we could do that with influenza and we could do that with meningitis and we can do that with um, measles and we can do that with all sorts of other things. All you got to do is put the spotlight on that thing and then hit everybody 
on Fox News and CNN and on your phone and in all your social media. Can you even go to a website today that doesn't start off with a splash screen about COVID-19? Good luck. I don't know where you'd find it. Everywhere I go. Even if it has nothing to do with anything related, it's still there. That's how you get keep the panic going. Keep the panic going. Keep the panic going. So, COVID-19 has claimed nearly 50,000 lives in America thus far, if you trust those numbers. Those numbers are changing. I heard about hundreds that were removed from various lists today because they had been added under pressure, had been added without evidence. Most of those casualties died alone without so much as the dignity of a familiar face as they drifted into eternal rest. That's because of the lockdown stuff that many people in the medical community didn't understand either. Most of those who have died are grandparents and the immunocompromised, the weakest among us. We are a grief-stricken and disillusioned people. Like many others, I'm struggling to make sense of how those who follow the teachings of Jesus, known for healing the sick, could shrug their shoulders at mass death and heap pain on the grieving. Did you catch that? This kind of writing is not capable of making good old-fashioned honest arguments. So what it does is it slides them in unformed, unsubstantiated, but clothed in emotion. Bathed in emotion. And for our society today, emotion and thought are the same thing. Emoting and thinking, same thing. No, they're not. And so you have emotional statements made, and then without substantiation, in purely slanderous form, the assertion that people who follow, allegedly follow the teachings of Jesus, could shrug their shoulders at mass death and heap pain on the grieving. Oh, who's that? John Piper? Who, who's doing this? You see, the idea is if you don't panic like us and buy our worldview and agree to diving face first into worldwide depression, which leads to war and disease and famine and everything else, then you are shrugging your shoulders at mass death and you want to heap pain on the grieving. Well, obviously, John Piper doesn't want to do that. Uh, No one that was mentioned in the article at this point wants to do that. It is a cheap general shot, unsubstantiated, and a real editor would have pulled it. But this type of stuff doesn't really get edited. And I'm pulling quotes myself here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Then he talks about his own experience in evangelicalism, which, of course, he's left. And he concludes by saying, but I'd I'd never predicted that I would witness prominent Christian leaders dismissing death. So if you contextualize it, if you recognize how much death takes place every day, worldwide, 1.8 people per second. 2.8 million in the United States each year. Break it down, get out your calculator, you'll get it. 
You figure that out. If you put that in context, that means you dismiss death. How did, how was John Piper dismissing death? Well, he wasn't. He wasn't. But you see, what Jonathan Merritt detests is a God who has a sovereign purpose that he's accomplishing in this world. He goes on to say, a prominent church in Texas recently paid for a billboard to ask commuters, is coronavirus a judgment from God? Well, I just stop. That is a very valuable question. That is a valuable question. And my concern, (laughs) sorry, but it was 19 years ago that I sat behind this microphone, not in this room, but it was 19 years ago that I, on the day after September 11th, raised the exact same question in regards to what had happened then. And anyone who has this in their hand cannot help but ask that question and seek to provide a balanced and meaningful answer. But that is, that's only if you actually believe this to be the Word of God. If you don't, well, that's a different thing. And of course, he's writing to people who don't. Because he just, let me read it again. A prominent church in Texas recently paid for a billboard to ask commuters, is the coronavirus a judgment of God? But that's not as bad as, so that's it. One sentence. No argumentation. See, you can only do this when you are only writing for one spectrum of people. And you don't care what anyone else thinks. And you don't care to be accurately representing the, the, the actual topic. But that's not as bad as Ralph Drollinger. The Christian minister who leads a Bible study for members of President Donald Trump's cabinet, who answered the question in the affirmative. Uh-oh, he answered in the affirmative. In a series of blog posts, he argued the disease is God's consequential wrath on our nation, worrying that whenever an individual or corporate group of individuals violate the inviolate precepts of God's word, he, she, they, or the institution will suffer the respective consequences. Oh, no! Someone actually believes if you violate the precepts of God's word, judgment might come? How can that be? Robert Jeffress, now notice there's no argument against it. That's just, the argument is, this is even worse than asking the question, is coronavirus a judgment of God? You're actually thinking that God's law still has relevance today. How dare you? See, but you don't, you don't, you're not stating it. You're just using the emotional approach to make the argument without actually making an argument. Robert Jeffress, another Christian minister close to Trump, echoed this idea by warning all natural disasters can ultimately be traced back to sin. Now, I'm not a big fan of Robert Jeffress. Okay, I'm not. I, I have seen too much of the red, white, and blue flag-waving stuff being confused for worship at his church. So I, no, I, no thank you. But you, you really want to argue that statement? Um, this is a fallen world. That has to do with sin. Therefore, 
The statement is self-evidently true. Their interpretation of recent events is not as uncommon as you might assume, as you might assume. You and me, see, you, you see the signaling? You know, the little head nod, the little winky-winky, and we, we Atlantic readers, we're all, yeah, we're all in this together. One recent poll reports that some 44% of Americans say the pandemic is a wake-up call from God and signs of coming judgment. Well, that's actually encouraging. We'll see how long that lasts. Probably not very long. Um, I'm not reading the whole thing. Like I said, there's a whole thing about... Well, well, check this out. Ironically, the choice to emphasize these sorts of judgmental messages instead of stressing love and caring. Instead of... So if, if you believe in... If you believe in God's law, then you don't believe in love, and you can't care for anyone. You see how these arguments are made? Um, It is costing the religion dearly. According to LifeWay Research, 70% of Protestants stop attending church for at least a year from the ages of 18 to 22. Why did they leave? 26% said it was because church members were judgmental or hypocritical. An additional 15% said it was due to church members being unfriendly and unwelcoming. Christians' bad behavior has propped up has propped open their church's back doors. Well, there are tons and tons of articles about that subject. But what does that have to do with coronavirus? All that stuff was well before coronavirus came along, right? This is just an opportunity to take a shot at the church. This is just an opportunity to take a shot at what he himself has apostatized from. Remember, the same thing's operating here that operates when you read Bart Ehrman. They're both apostates. It's just one still pretending. And the other one isn't. So, I could, you know, respond to a lot of what is said here, but but notice, um, <laughs> being unfriendly and unwelcoming. Folks, I've uh, been an elder in a church for decades now, and let me tell you something. When you're on the inside... I can guarantee you what you're told as an elder by someone who leaves your church will be very different when they tell everybody else. Um, And there's always two sides to that story. Always two sides to that story. Uh, But the point is, that is an irrelevant argument. has nothing to do with coronavirus at all. It doesn't help that such high numbers of America's faithful, particularly white evangelicals and conservative Catholics, continue to publicly support a president who is emblematic of the very attributes that so many loathe about believers. So let's take a shot at Trump while we're at it. Um, And in the process, let's not talk about the real issues. This was the same thing he did with Mueller. Is he dug back into stuff from the 1990s rather than dealing with what Mueller said what Mueller said was not anything about, oh, I just think Donald Trump is a paragon of virtue. He didn't say that. What he does recognize, obviously, is the fact that the other party is a barely disguised front organization for the CCP. And if you don't know what the CCP is, you really need to get used to hearing that. Chinese Communist Party. They want world domination, and they're accomplishing it. They're accomplishing it financially. They're accomplishing it by investment. And that is an organization that has millions of its own people in gulags. People disappear in China all the time. 
The Chinese communists are just as evil as Stalin was or any of the rest. Just look at some history, if you would, please. So rather than actually dealing with substantive arguments, what he's gotten away with, because of who he's writing it to, is just to appeal to the prejudices of that group. And obviously what that means is the leftist elites function not on the basis of logical argumentation, but emotion. But last one I'll look at. Check this out. This is how we finished the uh, article. The earmark of Christianity is kindness, compassion, and supernatural love. It's not fighting back, attacking enemies, settling scores, or leveraging other people's pain for your own advancement. Some of the most visible Christians in America, it seems, need to go back to Sunday school and discover the loving roots at the core of this great religion's message. I wonder, did Jonathan reread that paragraph and realize that's what he had just been doing? That the last two articles I've seen from him were fighting back, attacking enemies, settling scores, leveraging other people's pain for your own advantage. That's exactly what he's been doing just in service of the left. That's what he's been doing. And when people get that deeply into something, sometimes they just can't even see it. They can't even see it themselves. So this is what passes for writing in, um, in our day and age. And it wouldn't have in many contexts in the past where there was some level of concern for journalistic integrity and things like that. But the internet has unfortunately destroyed a lot of that kind of a, of a thing. So when you, it, it just seems to me that the world loves apostates. The world loves apostates. The world loves people who will give them reason not to believe. And they don't care whether you're a Bart Ehrman apostate and you've given it all up, or whether you're a Jonathan Merritt apostate where you're still in process of getting there. Um, but there have been a lot of these people that have made a name for themselves. You know, Jonathan Merritt, high connections to well-known Southern Baptist figures. But he's using that. And he's using that as his entree into the world of the elite. I'll give you the insights. Um... I wonder where he will be in just a matter of, uh, of years. Um, the trajectory is clear and inarguable as it stands right now. All right. So um, I didn't get around to this. I don't want to do it right now. Um, but uh, tomorrow, um, all depends on how much I get done tonight. But one of the things I want to talk about um, tomorrow is a textual variant at Romans 5.1. And I think you'll find it interesting. And, and it, it's not going to be uber, uber technical either. It's more how it is true that we are influenced by our context. And I have been, and I'll use myself as the example, um, and how sometimes a controversy or a study that you don't expect 
coming from another angle sheds new light on something you go, huh, hmm, maybe. We'll talk about that on uh, on the program tomorrow. And hopefully tonight I'll be able to get some work done on moving forward in some other areas as well. By the way, I was sent a link uh, to a, I think it was a two-hour um program with Leighton Flowers and Ken Wilson. Haven't listened to it yet. I might get a chance to listen to it uh, tomorrow morning. I intend to be doing, going to be trying to do um, uh, something where I would be able to listen to something. Uh, But I'm not in any, like I said, not in any major hurry. Um, I have been told that they continue to raise the canard of an unwillingness on my part to debate. I don't know how more clearly I can express this, how many ways I can say it, but I will debate Ken Wilson. We'll do it. We'll do it at the right time. There aren't any debates going on right now, in case you haven't noticed. And no, I'm not doing an internet debate. Uh, We'll do the real, actual debate, and we'll do it once we have rescheduled what we have already had to cancel thanks to the panic of 2020. But we'll do it. What, why, is, why is that not clear? Y'all, it's getting to the point where if I hear people saying it's being repeated, it's just becoming a blatant lie. Um, so I, I hope that's not what it is. So I'd, I'd like to ask you all, stop the falsehoods. Um, we'll set up the debate when it's appropriate to do so. But I haven't even finished, I haven't even gotten into helping everyone else understand, and maybe that's what they're afraid of, but everyone else understanding what is Stoic determinism? What is Gnostic determinism? Is there a difference between vanilla Gnostic determinism and Valentinian Gnostic determinism? Uh, What would Manichaeanism at the time of Augustine have believed about God, was there any concept whatsoever of a divine decree from a, a, a personal God in Manichaeanism? Well, no, there isn't. There wasn't, but we need to document that, lay that out. And there's a lot of people out there that are really wondering about the relationship of the Manichaean God, light, and going to the bathroom. There's a lot of people that are really just sitting there going, I want to hear how all this relates together. <laughs> and who are the elect in Manichaean? And, and, and aren't you Calvinists just the exact same thing as the Manichaean elect were? Because, I mean, it's all the same thing, right? Because you're Manichaean Christians. That's, that's what Ken Wilson says. You're a Manichaean Christian. His own words. I'm just holding him to what he said. That's all. You know, he put it in print. I didn't. And someone sent me just recently. Um, I'm not sure they sent it to me if they posted it someplace, but um, someone arguing on the net saying, and of course, you Calvinists are just simply Manichaeans anyways. And so the, the, it's, it's running around out there. And so let's get it all laid out on the table. And then we'll be happy, happy to debate the subject in person the way it's supposed to be done. 
So please stop saying that's not going to happen. So with that, we will... I'm not... Probably tomorrow should be the same time as today, I think. Uh, about the only way I can work it out. Um, yeah. And then we'll take Wednesday off, and we'll be back into it probably on Thursday. So that's the schedule right now, which could change at the drop of a hat, as it frequently does. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. God bless.